0: All right, turn to Romans 13, if you haven't already. <clears throat> Just a couple, three verses today. Look at that. Just uh, Romans 13, 8, 9, and 10 under the title, which comes essentially from the text, Love Fulfills the Law. Thank you to Adam, too, for choosing that opening text that we open the service with, very much connected to this this message from Psalm 119, that reading was. And Paul is on about that sort of stuff here. The law and how good it is, meant for us. Well, in Romans 13, Paul is um, still working out his call to the Christian life, his call to godliness in the Christian life, that began in Romans 12, 1 through 2, that, that famous text, be transformed in the renewing of your mind, be, be not conformed to this world, present your bodies as living sacrifices, that text. Well, this, this section 12 and through 15, through chapter 15, the middle of it, is the application, then, of all the gospel truths, all those doctrinal truths in chapters 1 through 11 of Romans. Another way to say it is that sanctification, growing in Christ, being a Christian and walking the Christian life, and growing in Christ is is not merely theoretical, but practical, very practical, practical. The righteous standing we have been given through faith in Jesus Christ is worked out in daily life through the concrete actions Paul describes in these chapters. Do this. Be like this. Don't do this. Think about this. What does life look like for people who know that by faith alone all their sins are forgiven And all their condemnation is removed and all of God's righteousness in Christ has become their righteousness and the basis upon which they are saved. What does life look like? How do you live the Christian life? And having just worked through a bit on how the Christian is to relate to governing authorities, remember that if you were here last week? Paul now returns to a theme he referenced earlier. Love. In verses 8 through 10 of Romans 13, Paul now addresses the subject of a Christian's attitude toward and relation to people outside the church mainly, people all out in the world, everybody, anybody that you might run into. Paul had focused on the theme of love back in Romans 12, 9 through 16, but since love is the core of the Christian life. It's a one-word summary of the fruit of the life of God in the soul of a man, in the soul of a person. It's the core of the Christian life. He returns now to it again in our, in our text. In this paragraph, love uh, appears three times as a verb, twice as a noun, so enough with that, you know, whatever people say, I don't know, love is a noun, na- what do they say, love is a verb, I don't know what it is the saying. love is a pronoun, I don't know what they say, but... But look at right there, it's three times as a verb, twice as a noun, so you figure it out. You can't say it. it's just love is one thing. The section begins with a command to love, followed by a reason. And the reason is that love fulfills the law. That does not <laughs> That's not going to be compelling for a lot of modern-day American Christians, is it? You should love because, because love fulfills the law. Oh, I don't even know. I wasn't even thinking about the I don't have a frame of reference for what you're talking about. This does not motivate me, would say most of the Christians I would say these days. Next, because the law itself explains how love fulfills the law, Paul restates several commands from the law, from Exodus and Leviticus. He then repeats that love fulfills the law. You'll see all of this in a minute. So that's what's before us today, the, the place of love in the Christian life, the relation of love to the law of God, and that is so crucial. That is so gospel, practical, crucial, and the relationship of the law to the Christian, all of those things. Before we turn to the text, let's pray, though, and ask the Lord's blessing once more. Father, thank you for your word. As foreign as some of these things are to us, and as perverted is the concept of love in our world, we need your word to help us. And we need your spirit to guide us and to help us to see what's there and then to live it out. If it is to be at all, it will be because of your spirit. So, we ask Your help now in all those ways that You would bless Your people, that You would convict us, that You would help us to grow in the knowledge of Christ, and that You would grant us even now that humble, joyful submission to Your Word, that You'd lead us to repentance and and to growth in Christ. Would You do this, Father, we ask, we plead, in Jesus' name, amen. Romans 13.8. 9 and 10 go like this. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law for the commandments you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet and any other commandment, are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. The holy and inerrant word of God. We have some work to do on all of that. Well, there's three points today, and I'll get to them, Uh, and they are just the three verses, so there's not even any titles. I just didn't get that far. So the titles are literally verse 8, verse 9, and verse 10. Those are the three points. But before we get there, I want to emphasize something here before we launch into those. And that is the question of how the law and love fit together, how the law law of God, law of Moses, the Ten Commandments, all of it, thinking broadly of God commanding. How all of that relates to love? Well, and and you can see just by reading Romans 13 that there is clearly a very strong connection between law and love in Paul's thinking, and therefore in reality, and therefore is meant to be in the Christian life. But but we're kind of like, well, we're going to need some help with that. But we, we want to zoom out here a bit and consider the broader context of Paul's letter with the love of God for sinners expressed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the, God's love for sinners, God's redeeming love. That is what provides the basis and motivation for living life in obedience to God's every command. God calls sinners sinners to Christ. And then, for all who by God's grace come to Christ, who are, who had been, who have been, who are made alive in Christ, putting their trust and dependence entirely in Him, we are then called to live out our lives in joyful obedience to God's commands. In other words, the who we are drives the what we should do, or as theologians would say, the indicatives drive the imperatives. What we are is far more intricately important and foundational than what we do. In fact, the doing comes from the being. So, when Paul commands disciples to love everyone back, to love in every situation, in Romans 12, 9 and 10, we recall that... God poured His love, His love, into our hearts to do it. He's been speaking about love for a while, remember back in chapter 12. And we recall again from Romans 5, I'm just going to say that again, that God poured His love into our hearts. That's Christians. When He urges then, love your neighbor as yourself, in our text, 13.9, We remember that foundationally, God loved us when we were his enemies. And even when we fail to love others, we remember that nothing can, quote, chapter 8, separate us from the love of Christ. So this isn't about keeping, this isn't about saving oneself through obedience. This isn't about keeping oneself saved by means of obedience. This is for Christians who are saved by God's love, the sufficient sacrifice of Christ. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, and we repent then, depending on the finished and all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ for us. In short, the commands of Romans 13 rest fully on the gospel. And Romans 13, we're almost getting to point 1, just about, Romans 13 also corrects a possible error. When Paul described the Christian's freedom in chapter 6, Adam read from before this text in the middle of the song set, but also there in chapter 6, Paul said that you Christians are not under law but under grace. Romans 13 shows that, however, not being under the law is no invitation to throw the law out. Or even worse, to live in lawlessness. That would be an error. As Jesus stated, and this is so simple, you'll be like, oh yeah, if you love me, You will keep my commandments. Oh, well, that's how Jesus talked. Law and love. He also proclaimed, Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So to recap quickly, we need the gospel of grace as the context for any discussion of the law in the Christian life. And the other thing, we need to remember that there simply is a significant and necessary relationship between the law, love, and the Christian life. All of that is presumed by Paul as he launches into these verses. And so shall we. Point one, verse eight is point one. Owe no one anything. Look there again, owe no one anything, owe nothing to anyone, except owe them love, except to love each other. Stop. It's the word owe there, reference to debt, that is the connection to what came before. It's a callback. In verse 7, he had written, and we covered this last week, pay to all what is owed to them. Him to honor to honor, you know, the thing with the taxes and all that. Pay to all what is owed to them. And then he's still thinking in that frame of reference. And now here in in verse 8, in fact, owe no one anything. And now he's transitioning. Uh, Except there is a debt that you owe that you'll never pay back. to love one another. So it it was that theme of owing or paying debts that brought love back to Paul's mind as the principal theme of what it means to live out the Christian life. But before he returns to the theme of love, and so will we, we should stop and say something about that reference, the briefest of references, to debt again. In those first words of verse 8, "'Owe no one anything.'" We shouldn't just throw that away and just just run over it and get to love, although the love thing is the main point, but we should at least say a word here. He offers this absolute principle here, as an assumptive kind of moving along to the next point. Oh, no one, anything, Christians. Well, let me tell you a couple things. The Bible, in fact, regulates lending, borrowing, and debt, but never categorically forbids it. God gave Israel laws to govern borrowing and repayment. Israelites freely loaned money to their impoverished brothers, but they did not charge interest on such loans, Exodus 22. David said that the righteous man is Quote, ever lending generously, Psalm 37. Jesus added, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So don't lecture them, well, you shouldn't have any debt. No, you borrow them, you loan them money. Matthew 5. The Bible never forbids returns on investment and business ventures, and these can take the form of interest on business loans, all of that is, is, is true. But to speak generally about the Christian's handling of things in the world for which one might use money and one might use money they don't have and what that might say about one's heart, the absolute principle holds in terms of application. We might put it like this. Believers repay their debts. That principle underlies Paul's transition to the theme of love. He's thinking of love. Believers repay their debts. We should pay off our debts to everyone except the one debt that can never be fully repaid, the continuing debt of love for those around us. In this life. We can never say that we have satisfied our obligations in this area. I have paid the debt of love to my fellow man, therefore I need not love any further. I have loved you enough, therefore I'm done loving you. We can never say that. We can never say that. The Christian never retires or resigns in this life, in this call and obligation to love our brothers and sisters and to love our neighbors. Now, I wanted to share with you something. I didn't find a way to um, I say this my own way, so I just want to quote it to you. It's somewhat lengthy. That's okay. It's written to speak. This is from John Piper. Quote, I'll, I'll tell you when it's not Piper. It'll be a little bit. I'll tell you when it's me again. <laughs> Quote, So what does Paul mean that we owe love to each other? How did we get into this debt? Why am I your debtor if you have given me nothing? There's a clue back in Romans 1.14. There, Paul describes his debt to the world. He uses The same related debt language. He said, I am under obligation. Literally, I am a debtor, both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. This is a concrete illustration of Paul being in debt to the world. How did he get in this debt? Not because the world gave him anything. In fact, the world continually hurts Paul, and he still keeps on paying his debt of love. How did he get in debt? The next verse Romans 1:15 says Paul says, "So I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome." So Paul's debt to the world, he pays by preaching the gospel of Christ, the good news that Christ died for sinners and that God's righteousness is a free gift, not a damning threat for all who trust Christ. That's Paul's payment of love to Greeks and barbarians. Piper goes on, Romans 1.5 shows how he got into this debt, where he wrote, through whom, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So, Paul had received something, but not from the Greeks and barbarians. He had received from God grace free grace, and apostleship from Jesus. The debt of love that we have to unbelievers and, and believers is not because they have done anything for us. The debt is because Christ has done everything for us when we did not deserve it any more than the world deserves our love. When Christ loves us freely, when He gives His life for us, When he takes away all our sin and guilt and condemnation and guarantees for us everlasting joy in him, and all of this when we were his enemies, we become debtors to all men. You might think, no, we become debtors to Christ. Ah, but here is what makes love really love. Here is what makes his love really free and our love for each other really free. Christ cannot and dare not be paid back. He cannot because our debt is infinite and we could never pay it. And He cannot be paid back because all our acts of so-called repayment are enabled by His grace. And so with every one of them, we go deeper into debt, a glorious eternal place to be. God gets the glory as benefactor. We get the joy as beneficiary. And woe to the person who tries to reverse those roles. And he dare not be paid back. We dare not make any attempt to pay him back. Because then grace would no longer be grace. If you could pay back grace, it would be business transactions and no longer grace. Grace is free or it is not grace. And this is also what makes our love free to others. Since our love to others is flowing out from what Christ gave us and not from what others gave us, it is free. They can't deserve it. Freely we have received from Christ and freely we are to give. Here is the way John put it. He laid down his life for us and we ought, we are debtors, we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, 1 John three sixteen And 1 John four eleven, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought, we are debtors, we also ought to love one another. So, this is Piper's conclusion, so our debt of love toward others came about because Christ has given us everything when we were no more deserving of His love than anyone is deserving of our love, end quote. That is very good theology, very precise and correct biblical interpretation, very insightful, and best of all, very true. Now, adding the rest of verse 8, the First half again, owe no one anything except to love each other. The rest of eight, you call it 8B. Four, now here we get the other. This is the, here's the actual hard part. <laughs> Four, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. The reason Paul gives... For this command to love is that love fulfills the law. Believers ought to love one another as well as unbelievers because this fulfills what the law commands. That's the, you know, that's that's what he's saying. Not explaining it, that's just saying it in ways that hopefully will click. What we actually want to know is how does loving one's neighbor fulfill God's law? And beyond that, we want to say, why is that important? And again, here we're thinking of God's commands in general, perhaps the law of Moses specifically, and then the context here in a second will suggest that we zoom even further from the general law to the law of Moses to the Ten Commandments as sort of the, as sort of the representative of all of God's commands. So how does loving one's neighbor fulfill God's law? Well, the Ten Commandments, as he's zooming in, contain two divisions, sometimes called the two tablets. Remember? Two tablets. The first division gives us vertical Godward commands, such as, you shall have no other gods before me. The second division, or tablet, contains horizontal commands which pertain to others, other humans, other human relationships. Each of the divisions can be summed up with a single comprehensive command over each of the respective tablets, just as Jesus explained in Matthew 22 when He was asked, which is the great commandment, which is the greatest of them. He said this, referencing Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5, and what will become important to us in a minute, Leviticus 19, 18. Jesus said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law, Jesus concluded, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. You want to summarize God's law. One hangs over, one command hangs over each tablet and the tablets represent all of God's law. You follow these, you do these, you're doing the law. This is what he's saying. And here in his letter to the Romans, writing to Christians, that is, those born again by the power of God and therefore indwelled with the Holy Spirit, Paul is assuming that his readers have a vertical love for God, the first tablet. They're Christians. They have a vertical love for God through Jesus Christ, on account of Jesus Christ, purchased by Jesus Christ, fueled by the Spirit of Christ but do they have a horizontal love for others? When Paul concludes that the person who loves in this way has fulfilled the law, he means that the person has accomplished the original intent and purpose of the law given to Israel. It is the ongoing exercise of love that constitutes the fulfillment of the law. This was the aim of the giving of the law, which now is possible, this fulfillment in practice, this is now possible for, chapter 8, verse 4, Romans, for those who walk according to the Spirit, fueled by the Spirit. And as Paul wrote back in Romans 5, God has poured out again His love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom He has given us. Now the law can be obeyed from the heart. Because the Holy Spirit resides within us, we will love our neighbor in ways in which we never would have or could have or would even desire to do in our own strength, merely in the flesh. But when we fail, and we do, to love our neighbor as we should and thereby fail to fulfill the demands of the law. Christians, we hear the wonderful promise in the gospel that Jesus Christ loved His neighbor perfectly and that His perfect obedience, His perfect righteousness is reckoned to us through faith, that we're in God's presence through Christ because of His obedience, not ours or lack thereof. And so, we freely repent depending upon Christ. It is the Christian hearing this message over and over and over which strangely, we might say paradoxically, creates in our hearts repentance and a renewed desire to love our neighbor and fulfill the law. It's only when we consider the command to love others in light of the gospel, which is why I started with that little bit before we started into the point, in light of the gospel that Jesus Christ gave Himself for us when we did nothing to earn His love, that an amazing thing happens. All of a sudden, we find ourselves loving those we would not otherwise love. We are to love our neighbor knowing that Christ has died for all those times when we fail to love our neighbor. It is the gospel, not the law, which creates the desire to obey the law and then grants the power to obey it. And even more so, a law which Christ has ultimately and finally fulfilled on our behalf by means of His perfect life. So, owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Christians, listen to this, he says. Now, point two, these are more brief, I think. That first one was the longer one. Verse 9, Paul will now prove that uh, genuine Christian love genuinely fulfills the law. Paul's point here is that commands from the second and, again, horizontal table of the Ten Commandments, and he references the sixth, uh, sorry, he's got them out of order, but actually he's following a um, a Septuagint thing and change order but he, he he's referencing the seventh sixth eighth and tenth commandments uh, which are summed up in the law's general command he says to love one's neighbor as oneself that's Leviticus nineteen eighteen, which Jesus referenced when he was asked which is the greatest command that one sums up the second table of the Ten Commandments, love one's neighbor as oneself. So he he writes, verse 9 goes like this, for, love fulfills the law, for the the law, here's some specific commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet from the second table, and any other commandment, Paul there showing that he's making a general point, horizontal point, Not a reference to a specific list of commands, you know, that if you do these things, then you're a Christian and fine with God. That's not what he's doing. So, those commands and any other commandment, vertical, we think, there, are summed up in this word Leviticus 19, 8. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So, love fulfills the law because the second table of the Ten Commandments and other Mosaic laws, laws from the law of Moses, related to it, other horizontal, simply spell out the practical details of what is involved in loving others. Which is to say, love doesn't do a whole host of harmful things to a neighbor. Therefore, a list of negative commands, which is summed up in the positive command, Love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19.18 All the various commands of the law are simply expressions of love, Paul says. Love is the heart and soul of the commands. And of course, there are countless situations in life in which no law can be formulated to specify what is exactly the right and loving course of action in every possible little situation. So wisdom is needed. Would you say the Holy Spirit is needed? Discernment is needed and a holy determination to walk by the Spirit and a dependence upon the Spirit. The very center of Paul's ethics, Christian ethics, is love. The affections of the heart. Not the mere performance of outward actions as if you could just fulfill the law by doing surfacey honoring with the lips. That won't That isn't Christianity. It isn't loving God. It isn't knowing God. The essence of the Christian life is obeying the law from the heart because Christ has fulfilled the law for us. Now go fulfill the law. Does that make sense? I hope it maybe is starting to. So, love is what we're on about here because that's what Paul is on about. Let's affirm that the commandments teach believers then how to love others. Let's just walk through the four real quick. You shall not commit adultery. We love our spouse by staying faithful in body and in mind. One need only watch the effects of adultery to see that adultery is an act of self-sinful indulgence, self-indulgence, not love. It's not love. It's the opposite of love. You shall not commit adultery. You don't commit adultery, you're loving in that negative sense. You shall not murder. Murder, Jesus would go on to say, is an act of hate, which, of course, we, we might quite readily pick up if we just read, you know, Cain and Abel or or many other such examples. This doesn't mean that all killing is sinful. Of course, there is just war theory since the great Augustine, a soldier, a husband, a defender in a defensive war, defense, acts in love for his people and can even fight with inward love toward his foe that's just killing. Murder, though, you shall not murder. Positively, we love our neighbors by doing what we can to preserve their life and safety. We help them protect their life and safety and property. That's bound up in you shall not murder. We respect life. You shall not steal. To steal someone's property is to really care nothing for the person. Wouldn't that be true? It's got to be true. You don't care about the person you're stealing from. One way, then, that we love our neighbors is by preserving their property, especially through fair dealings. We do not take advantage, we do not steal. So we love others when we refuse to steal. You shall not covet. This law teaches us how to love neighbors who have abilities or privileges that we don't have, or stuff, or relationships. The law teaches us how to, in other words, marvel correctly. We want to be, this calls us to be content with what is ours, to trust God to give us what we need and to give thanks for the gifts of others, the gifts that others have that we don't have. In this way, admiration does not decay into jealousy or envy or bitterness. Envy, bitterness towards others because what they have, it's coveting. Both torments the subject who envies, eats, and would destroy the happiness of the one who is envied. You would take their stuff from them. And the one who covets resents God for not giving them those things or more of the things you already have. And they resent themselves for not achieving more, and they resent their neighbors for having more. Thou shalt not covet. And while it's true that love can never be exhausted or comprehended by specific injunctions from the law, it does not then follow from this that love goes around the law or beyond its prescriptions, or that we can even make sense of what love even is apart from the law. There is a great danger of separating love from moral norms based on God's commands and God's designs. Let me say that sentence again. I didn't wait it like I want to. There there is a great danger in separating love from moral norms based on God's commands and God's designs. Love, we know what love is because of God's commands and God's designs. So, if love is cut free from these, it easily dissolves into sentimentality, and virtually any course of action can then be defended as, quote-unquote, loving. Love is even redefined at that point based on a new morality of some kind. You know that's happening all around us, right? Love is being redefined, emptied of its God-designed commands and His designs for humans, and refilled with some new morality, a wicked morality, one made in the image of sinful man. This is what we see going on all around us these days. And, and so, love and God's law are not polarized or fighting against each other. They're not opposites or repellent to one another, but rather belong together. You must not separate them. And by the way, nor are we to pit the Holy Spirit against keeping the law, as if the latter were dynamic, the Spirit dynamic and freeing, and the former, the law deadening and rule based. No, 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 no. In Paul's theology, therefore, in true Christianity, the Spirit is the means by which the law is rightly observed and obeyed, and therefore, for the Christian, keeping the law is not a heavy burden, but a spirit-empowered joy. That's what explains Psalm 119, Psalm 119, all of it. Looking forward to when God would put his spirit in all of us and keep us forever and cause us to walk in his statutes. The very promise of the gospel foretold by the prophets, Ezekiel, Jeremiah. Verse 9, again, for the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And let's just clear up one quick thing before we um, move to verse 10 and close I just want to make sure you're not hearing the end of verse 9 and, and really Leviticus 19, 18 then. Love your neighbor as yourself, as a call to like self-love. I don't want you to, he- I don't want you to hear that, well, we're being called to grow in our love for ourselves. So, it's, these, are, these verses are sometimes understood to be wrongly, this calling for self-esteem, to grow in self-esteem. And self-love, and that's a prerequisite then for loving others. First, you've got to work on yourself. You've got to love yourself, you know. No, the, the appeal here is simply for God's people to show the sort of care and concern for others that they already naturally have for themselves. In other words, it is assumed here that people already love themselves. You, you already work for your self-interest. You can't help it. Sure, it takes its sinful turns, doesn't it? But, but that's already wired into us. Your instinct is to, to run to safety. Your instinct is to eat. Your instinct is to sleep. Your instinct is to cover yourself, put on more. You, you, you do that naturally. This isn't a call to do it, it's just simply recognizing that you do do it. And now extend that same care to others, love others. And in doing this, Christian, you fulfill the law's commands. And Paul finishes this line of thought then in verse 10. That's the third point. And we jump quite quickly to the conclusion in in this point. Verse 10 reads, love, he's just simply interpreting now the commands. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Now he he flips it and repeats what he said, what he started with in verse 8. Therefore, since love does no wrong to a neighbor, the command, therefore, repeating from verse eight, love is the fulfilling of the law. So verse 10A simply restates the principle of Leviticus nineteen eighteen negatively. Positively, one should love one's neighbor as oneself. Negatively, this means that no wrong is inflicted on the neighbor. And then we can now see from the argument of verses 9 through 10a how love fulfills the law. Since through love the commandments of the law are upheld and the summary of the law, Jesus said, is Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's how you fulfill the law. Case closed for Paul. Love fulfills the law. And then... Yeah, he says that in the end of verse 10. Same conclusion. Since doing no wrong to a neighbor is the corollary of loving the neighbor as oneself, and since loving one's neighbor fulfills the law, it follows logically that love fulfills the law. That's Paul's point. One commentator says, helpfully, the law does not interfere with the exercise of love. Rather, Its commands and prohibitions coach us to act rightly, lest we rest content with vague and often hypocritical sentiments that we mistake for Christian love, end quote. Yes, love, knowing what love is, is intimately connected to God's revealed law. You want to know what love is? Look to God's law, not to the world. And note this also, to call believers to obey the law is not legalism. It is obedience, which is a necessary fruit, not legalism to love and to obey God's perfect law. Adam was nice enough to read a bit of Psalm 119. Go ahead and read all of that big thing. It's amazing. The believer wants to honor God by means of obedience to God's commands, knowing that such obedience is the evidence of the life of God in one's soul and in one's life. If you love me, said Jesus, you will do what I said. You will obey my commands. And God's commands help us love in practice. For example, it teaches us how to love our friends. Knowing how to support them and encourage them and build them up. The law shows us how to love co workers, seeing them as people, not skill sets. The law also teaches us to love the poor and what to do and what to say. The widow, the orphan, the spouse, a parent, a child. You want to know how to love? Look to God's law. God gives us laws so that we can live by His instruction instead of our best guesses. Or a a foreign wicked morality which wears our words as a skin, as someone would say. They've taken our words and filled them with new things and, and now would guilt you into doing what they want using our words. No. Take our words. Fill them with Bible truth. You want to know what love is. You don't check with the human rights Commission, you check with God. And our repentance also assumes our knowledge of and approval of God's commands. What else would we be repenting of except the transgressing of God's laws? And repentance is such a huge evidence of the Christian life, isn't it? we are repenters, as the Puritans would say. And so then our inability to love our neighbor as we ought should lead us to repentance. And as we close, it should continually point us to Jesus Christ and to the gospel, because not only in Him is perfect love, not only does He provide a perfect righteousness to us by means of His own perfect obedience to the law on our behalf, which is then credited to all who believe, but it also in looking to Him in His perfections and in His provisions, rather than to our own ability to love our neighbor and thus to fulfill the commandments, it's this that, again, strangely, paradoxically, is created then in us the desire to love our neighbors as ourselves. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer, and only then is the law fulfilled. Therefore, The great paradox of the Christian life is that we look to Jesus Christ for forgiveness when we can't love our neighbor as the law commands, only to find our desire to obey the commandment to love our neighbor renewed because of the Spirit. He fulfilled the law for us through the cross, through His body and His blood, so that we might be saved and that in Him we might fulfill the law through the love that He has poured into our hearts. So go, love. The word of the Lord. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. May God grant you understanding, all of us, each of us, and salvation, and assurance, and fruit, the fruit of love. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. We pray that you would do these things in us for your glory and that we would see that it would form a, increasingly form a a body here that is known for its love for one another and therefore the world might know that you are true and real as it sees the fruit of the love of your people one for another and then for the world. Help us to repent for where we have kept our blinders on and focused on ourselves. Help us to submit to Your Word in joy. Help us to love with joy, to obey with joy, knowing that in Christ all is taken care of. In Him is fullness of salvation, provision at Your right hand, fullness of joy, and He brings us to You by His sacrifice. And so now as we turn to that meal, the sacrifice, the communion. Father, help us to contemplate, to think about that sacrifice, the cost paid, and to be so thankful that it has been paid for your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.